Last week, just as a, as a real quick review, these were some of the terms that we defined. These, these are in your notes from last week, so don't, don't scramble to write any of these down. Just they're there and you can pick them up. Hermeneutics, okay, that's really what we're doing here. And that's just the science and art of interpreting the Bible. Okay, big, you know, five-syllable word um, that we use to describe this whole Bible study process. Um, and so we're doing, we're learning about how to do proper hermeneutics. Now there's two types of, generally two types of hermeneutics. There's an allegorical hermeneutic or an allegorical approach. And what this approach does is it, it assumes the Bible has various levels of meaning um, that are not expressly stated in the text. In other words, there's hidden meanings. We're looking for those hidden meanings. When Paul said, um, when he used the word John, he didn't really mean John. He meant John's third cousin. It, you know, it's, it's this, this idea of interpretation that the, the text doesn't, it says this, I know, but it doesn't really mean this. I've kind of got the secret meaning. I've got the secret interpretation. That's allegorical where, and a lot of people will do that in the Old Testament. They'll say, well, everywhere you see Israel, that really means the church now. That would be allegorical interpretation. Well, now it says Israel, but it really means the church. You're, you're kind of redefining the normal use of words. Whereas what we try to use, and I know it's a, it's a mouthful, but it's normal, literal, historical, grammatical. Um, and it just assumes the Bible has one interpretation and we're just going to take words at face value. And I used the, kind of that silly example last week about the letter between the two brothers. You guys remember that example where he said, Hey, I want you to pick me up in the airport. I'm coming in at this time. I'm going to stay for three days. And then when he gets there, he's got three suitcases packed and he brother says, well, how long are you staying? And he says, well, I'm staying for seven months because each day stands for two and a half months. And whoa, whoa, just, you know, speak English, you know, just. I, I just read your email and I assumed you were coming in on this day, this time you're staying for three days because you said it that way. And so that's how we want to approach Bible interpretation, that, that God had uh, every intention to communicate clearly with normal language. We're, so we're going to take normal language in its normal use. And that means if, if God uh, uses a figure of speech, we're going to recognize a figure of speech. Uh, we used the example last week of, you know, God in, in the Psalms saying that, you know, he will cover you with his wings. And so we're not going to take that blockheaded literally that, oh, well, God must be a bird, right? We're going to recognize, oh, that's a metaphor. Uh, he, he's using metaphorical language to say that God is protecting. He, he protects his people. Okay, that's the truth that's communicated there. So we just, we're going to recognize language in its normal use. That's, that's the approach. And that's the approach that we take here at the church. Exegesis just means to draw out from the text what's there. Eisegesis means to read into the text what is not there. Um, a lot of uh, Bible teachers that teach uh, from an eisegesis perspective is they will take a current event. They will, they will say, well, I want to preach on that current event. And let me find, let me find a couple of verses that kind of talk about that current event. And then they've already made up in their mind what they want to say about that event. And then they're just going to use four or five proof texts from the Bible to, to ram home what they already wanted to say. The exact opposite would be, hey, here's this current event. What does the Bible have to say to that? And then go to the Bible and begin to, to search the scriptures contextually and say, what does the Bible have to say about this event? Okay, the Bible has these three things to say about it. Now I'm going to teach from the Bible what it says versus me getting all wrapped up on, on what I want to say about whatever the topic is. 
Okay, so one is kind of an exegesis. There's a healthy respect for the word of God. We just want to know what God's word says. The other one says, well, I, I already know what I want to say. I just, I'm looking for a couple things to back, back me up. Okay, so you're kind of reading things into the text. And then observation, what does the text say? And so we've done a couple of those, um, those drills uh, this evening where, remember, observation, if you're looking for a visual image, you're a detective, you're a detective, you're writing down clues, you're collecting evidence, you're not ready to say what happened yet, you're just collecting evidence. And so tonight we're going to move on to um, the second step of Bible study, and that's interpretation. Anyone familiar with this, this picture or what's going on in this picture? This is, you know, if you've ever seen TV or crime shows, you know, this is how they reflect detectives um, figuring out and putting together a case. Okay. So this is, this kind of represents our observation. You know, you got some things on yellow paper, you got some things, you know, all over the place. You got pictures, you got this article here and, and you can, I don't know if you can see, they got strings coming off here, tying things together, but this is kind of a, a detective board. Okay. And so this is conceptually what your observation should look like when you're done observing. Um, you got a lot of, of data here. And now when you come to the interpretation stage, you're going to, you want to take that data and you actually want to determine what it means. Okay. You've determined what it says. That's observation. Now you want to determine what it means. And so in this second step, after utilizing the good observation that we've done, we want to now come to an accurate understanding of the author's meaning to his original audience. And this is why, this is why when we talk about Bible interpretation, we're, we're very confident that the Bible has one interpretation. Okay, we, we talk about one interpretation, maybe multiple applications to, to different people um, in different stages of life, but one interpretation. And what we mean by that is that the original author had an original meth message to the original audience that he intended to communicate. That's the goal of interpretation. That's what we want when we study the Bible. Uh, we'll get to application. That's the third step, but we don't want to rush to application. We've got to get this right before we can get application right. And so this is just the second step. It follows observation. Does anyone remember last week? I just kind of threw out a random, it's kind of not a random number, it's thought through, but the, the amount of time, the percentage of your time in Bible study that you should spend in observation, it's about 70%. And, and unfortunately, um, that's pro we probably spent about 10% in observation because we're so anxious to get to the interpretation because we're so really, really anxious to get to the application. And sometimes we skip over observation and interpretation, read the verse once and say, okay, this is what it means to me. And then we run off half cocked trying to live our, our Christian life that way. And so when we get to interpretation, if we've done a good job in our observation, interpretation is going to flow pretty naturally. In fact, we could, we could even see the lines blurring a little bit in our John 316 exercise, because sometimes you ask, you ask a really good observation question and it, and it helps it, it leads you right into interpretation. Well, who does God love in John 316? Well, he loves the world. Oh, that's, that's pretty significant. Right away, you get the, the scope of God's love. It's big. And so you, you start to even get some of that interpretation. So the foundation of accurate interpretation is precise observation. What we'll see is that accurate interpretation will yield a single meaning of the passage, not multiple meanings. 
We mentioned last week that a lot of the share and care Bible studies, you, you go in, nobody in the group has read the passage that you're studying. No, no one's even seen it all week. Everyone comes in, read it once, and everybody starts telling, telling what the passage means to them. And I kind of joke and say, you know, you, you came into the group with one interpretation, that was your own, and you left with seven or eight. And many times we think, wow, that was deep. And it's like, no, that was bad. <laughs> There's not eight interpretations. It's not what it means to you. There's a single interpretation. That's what we want to get to. And then we can start talking about applications. How does this apply to you? How does this apply to you? You know, you're, you're 18 years old. You know, I'm 41 years old. I've still got kids at home. You know, went in. I'm not, even, I, I'm not going to say how old he is, but he's got grown kids out of the home. So there's going to be some different application points potentially, you know, based on this biblical principle that, but we're not there yet. We're just looking for that one interpretation. What does the text mean? And so that's the main question during this step. What does the text mean? We've been looking at what it says. That's observation. And so after hours of analyzing and collecting data, uh, you're now ready to utilize the clues, put them together and determine what actually happened. That's, that's the goal in interpretation. And so interpretation is, is more taking a step back, taking the clues, beginning to analyze it, put it together. What does the text mean? We've already observed again what the text says. So here's some foundational principles for the interpreter. Uh, number one, and simply, they've got to be a believer in Jesus Christ to understand the word of God. That's, that's what 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us, that the natural man cannot understand the things of the spirit of God. So you can get a very bright unbeliever and and they're not going to be a good interpreter of God's word. They may get a couple things right here and there, but they're going to they're going to blow a lot of things because they don't have the spirit of God illuminating them and teaching them spiritual truth. And so that's one of the foundational principles uh, for the interpreter. The other thing is is we got to understand and believe as an interpreter that the scriptures and their original autographs were given as infallible and inerrant. What, am I, what do I mean by that? It just means that there's no errors in there, that, that each word, each grammatical structure is inspired. If, if we don't believe that, then, then why even study it? It's just like any other book <laughs> that you read. In fact, how many of you have read um, one book more than one time in your life? Yeah. And, and, and how many books have you read more than once? Could you put them on one hand probably? Maybe. Okay. Wow. No, I'm impressed. <laughs> but, but the point is this, if the Bible becomes like any other book, why would we even spend time studying it or reading it again? Why would we even go over it? Oh, I've been there. I've done that. You know, I read To Kill a Mockingbird in the seventh grade. I've never, I haven't read it since. It's good. I liked it. It's an interesting story, but I haven't read it since. So, I mean, if it's on the same par as To Kill a Mockingbird, why would, I, why would I pick this up? Why would I do this, you know, every week? Why would we? There'd be no point. So coming to it from an interpretation standpoint, we want to at least buy in that there's value in doing so. There's, there's something there that God wants to communicate to us. Letter C, the interpreter must understand that spiritual truth is taught and illuminated by the Spirit of God, indwelling each believer. No amount of 
intellectual training or inherent uh, intellect can ever make someone a sound interpreter of Scripture. Only the Spirit of God can as the believer depends upon him. And so we've got to understand in interpretation, in Bible study in general, there's a supernatural element involved. Okay, we, we want to, as believers, be faithful to get equipped, to get the tools necessary to practice and to get better with these tools. But ultimately understand that you could be the, the, the greatest uh, equipped tool collector in the world. But if you're not depending upon the Spirit of God, there's going to be limitations into what you can get from the Scripture. Um, And so we want to be really cognizant of that, uh, understanding that it's the Spirit of God as we depend upon Him that's that's really going to give us insight into this one interpretation that we're looking for in the Word. Uh, This interpreter must be uh, as objective as possible uh, and set aside their subjective pre- preconceptions, prejudices, and doctrinal, uh, traditional, or denominational biases. See, in the second that, that we, we read our thing, whatever our thing is, into the text, we, we violated interpretation 101. Because just remember, when you're coming to, to understand the Word of God, you can't bring your thing to the text. You know, and I, there's, there's people all the time. And we, we do this. I mean, we just do this naturally. We got to, we almost have to check ourselves. We got to just keep our thing, whatever that is out of the text. We've got to, we've got to come to it with fresh eyes and and allow the text to speak to us versus trying to jam our thing into everything that we see in the text. And you know, you know, those types of people, we are those types of people where you get these hobby horses and you just drive everything through that lens. Everything you read in scripture is driven through your lens. And so we want to be really careful as an interpreter not uh, to do that. Uh, interpreters must be willing to investigate and invest time in knowing and understanding the background of human behavior, history, sociology, geography, the sciences, and liberal arts. You know, that, that's just one of those things that I think is helpful to understand, you know, even, even the cultural development of certain societies. You know, when the, when the Bible, uh, the New Testament was being recorded, um, you know, probably the earliest book recorded we have in the New Testament was written in the 40 range, 40s AD, maybe mid 40s. And then the last books that we have recorded in the New Testament were written around 90 AD. And so you've got, you've got, you know, 40, 45 years there of, of time that's elapsed between those books. And so what was going on in those times? Well, even just the cultural development, what was going on with the early church? Well, there was a little bit of persecution locally in Jerusalem, but not much early on. And then there was a a couple of waves of persecution that caused some of the Jews to be scattered. That happened. But, but overall there was, uh, acceptance of of Christianity in in the empire in a sense I mean obviously Paul was getting chased everywhere by angry Jews for the most part and then if he was disrupting Greeks uh, financial means then he was getting run out of town too but in a sense of the religion they were accepted and you know something something turned something changed in the late 60s and you start to kind of look at that historical cultural development and I think part of it was You've got a, you've got a polytheistic society and polytheism can accept other gods. That's not an issue at all, but they have a problem accepting other gods who say they're exclusive, 
who say they're the only God. And that was one of the issues they had with Judaism. And then that became bit the biggest issue, I, I believe, with Christianity. Because when you're, when you're the, the, the synonym for your group is the way, that's pretty exclusive. It's not, it wasn't a way. They were called the way. And then they were preaching, obviously, that Jesus was the only way. And so when you start to get exclusive in a polytheistic society, then you, then you start having trouble. Um, I, think, I think that's where Christians are heading in this country. You've got, you've got exclusivity in a tolerant society. The same thing happens. The only thing tolerant people can't tolerate is exclusivity. <laughs> You know, and it proves that they're not really tolerant to begin with. They're, they're intolerant. But um, the other thing, just in terms of geography, you know, just, a, 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 just kind of a mindset. You know, when we get to the end of Romans, we're going to see that, that Paul's plan is to visit the church in Rome and then go on to Spain. What was going through his mind in that day? Well, if, if you look at the way history was working, in fact, um, Acts, the book of Acts, only covers the westward expansion of Christianity. Have you ever noticed that? Just kind of on a map, it, you know, here's, here's, you know, Jerusalem, here's Antioch, and then you've got this westward expansion. What, what happened over here in the east? Well, we just don't have it recorded in Acts, but apparently some of the apostles went that direction too. But when Paul says Spain, you know, that, that was prior to Christopher Columbus, you know, that was, years prior to so that was the end of the known world at the time and so you can you can kind of wonder what was going through Paul's mind wow am I I'm gonna I want to go fulfill the great commission like I want to I want to go do it and I want to take that last frontier and so you so just having that understanding of geography sometimes can help you you know paint with color in a sense with your interpretation when, when Paul says he's going to Spain he's not just saying oh I'm going to one more geography oh yeah I just want to go to that place over there I think there's some significance to that. And so those are the kind of things we want to put together as we interpret and just understanding some of those things. And it may take time to investigate that. You know, I learned that in a, I had to take a humanities credit in college and I was like, okay, what, what can I take? That's going to be easy. And it was like the, the history, what was it called? The history of, of Spain or something, or no, no, the history of Hispanic culture, intro to Hispanic culture. That's what it was. And, um, Here's what's really cool. It counted as a foreign language credit as well. And I knew there was not one word of Spanish spoken in the class. So I knocked that. Yeah, it was awesome. So I knocked that out. I knocked out a humanities credit. But I learned that, that I didn't even think about geography until my teacher. I didn't even think about that geography concept uh, biblically until my teacher in that class as a college sophomore pointed that out and said, Spain was the end of the known world. I said, oh, that's really cool. That's where Paul wanted to go. And you start, so anyways, it, it, you know, some of this might take some investigation. It's not going to be right, right on the surface there and might have to go to some historical sources for that. Let's keep moving. So, um, the interpreter, uh, some foundational interpreter, uh, principles for the interpreter, they must be willing to study with discipline. Um, second Timothy study to show yourself approved. Uh, they must be patient and realize that Bible study both accumulates knowledge and becomes more incisive with time and exercise. And so that, that's just true. The more time you spent studying the Bible, the, the greater your knowledge base becomes so that when you study it again, you've got a greater knowledge base to start tying things in. And I, I would imagine, Carl, I mean, you've been studying the Bible, you know, over 40 years. And I'm sure, you know, your knowledge base 
now and what you're able to tie together even when you just read the Bible is just so much more rich. You know, and I think he's a great example of that. And in others, and George and Winnin and Rose and, and others who have been reading the Bible uh, for many, many years, I think they could attest to that. And so it's, it's one of those things, especially as a, as a young man, I find myself many times just very impatient. You know, it's like you just want God to just download all the information like on a microchip. So you just get it all at once, but it takes time. You know, it's going to take time. And so hang in there, be patient, be willing to, to study with discipline. Don't be in a rush. What you learn, what you're going to learn, really learn then move on and really learn the next thing. And that would be kind of the encouragement there. So some foundational principles for the interpretation step. Um, letter A, the interpreter must understand that scripture interprets scripture um, and that the scriptures will never contradict itself or contradict other scriptures. We've got to understand this and, and believe that this is true going in. This is our readily admitted up front. This is our presupposition that, that the scripture can't contradict itself. And so we must interpret each verse or passage in view of other related passages in the same book of the Bible or in other books of the Bible. Let me give you an example. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me or if you want to listen, you, you can just listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Paul writes this, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Okay, and so I shut my Bible and I began to preach a sermon on why none of you should be married. And everyone in here that's married has committed a sin because clearly it's, it is uh, good for a man not to touch a woman. So all of you single people, you, you're still okay. I just would recommend don't get married. All of you married people, you know, we need to probably confess that sin because that's what, clearly what God's teaching in his word, right? Until you read verse 2. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And, and so you see just right there, right there in the same passage, you can, you can see if somebody rips that verse out of context and makes a doctrine of it, um, you just can't do that with anything. You've got to be, you've got to be careful. We've got to kind of put the whole counsel of the word of God together in some of these areas, um, especially if you're in a chapter like this, it's probably good to read the whole chapter before you start teaching the first verse, right? To kind of know what comes after that. So you don't look like uh, a fool when you contradict yourself um, later on. But that's just kind of an example of that. Understanding some related passages, understanding the context of the chapter you're in. Um, if two passages appear to contradict one another, then then our presupposition is that the problem's with the interpreter, not the scriptures, okay? Um, for they're not going to contradict themselves. So what does that mean? Well, it's just basically we might come to two passages. We say, wow, those look contradictory. But we recognize that the issue is with us. Maybe we don't have the knowledge we need to to, to marry those two together. Maybe we don't understand the, the context or the subtleties or the nuances of how they fit together. But we recognize the issues with us. Maybe we need more time. Maybe we need be, to be exposed to good teaching, whether that's, uh, you know, a pastor or a missionary or a commentary that might help us sort through why these aren't contradictory. But never do we come away saying, oh, well, the, oh, there it is. The scripture contradicts itself, so I, I'm not going to read it anymore. You know, our, we readily admit, we're honest, that we have a presupposition that if this is the word of God, then it, it can't contradict itself. It just makes sense that God would know what he said over here and what he said over there and, 
and not say the exact opposite thing. The interpreter must take the words of Scripture in their normal, literal, plain, historical sense to get the true meaning of the text. And so as we mentioned earlier in our study, literal interpretation recognizes that the authors of Scripture utilize normal language, um, including figures of speech, uh, figurative and illustrative language to communicate a clear message, not to obscure communication. Okay, we just... We don't believe God used figures of speech or figurative language to obscure communication, but actually to communicate, to, to communicate clearly. In fact, the, the book that everyone claims is so hard to understand is, is called Revelation, <laughs> which means he's uncovering. He's uncovering truth. He's trying to communicate. He's trying to clarify things, not confuse things. And so we, we've just got to understand um, that, that God used human authors to communicate in normal language. And so we want to take it as such. So the interpreter's goal is to understand the scripture as it was written and in the same way the original readers would have understood it. Those of you who have, who have been here um, with, with some of our teaching on repentance, um, that's a great example of this concept. It's, is not what does repentance mean today in the church and, and how would a, a normal pastor or Bible teacher describe repentance today? But the, the question is, how did Paul use the word and how would his original audience have understood the word? And so to do that, you, you've got to go back to some biblical definitions. You can look at some, some Greek sources outside of the Bible that, that use that word during that time period and put together a picture of what that word uh, meant because if you ask the normal church girl to, today, repentance means you got to turn from your sin. But if we look at the the biblical use of the word and the use of the word in in Greek sources during that time, it means to change your mind. And so you you could change your mind about sin, but sin's not incorporated into that word necessarily. You can change your mind about what cereal you were going to eat this morning. You can change your mind about what route you're going to take to work. You can change your mind about something biblical, who Jesus Christ is and what he did. And for uh, the Jews in Acts 2, that was exactly what Peter wanted them to change their mind about. Because 50 days earlier, they were yelling to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. And so they, they thought he was worthy of death. They needed to change their mind and realize they had crucified their Messiah. And so that's what we're talking about here. We want to, we, we don't want to take what we understand words to mean. Adoption's another great example. You know, we've been studying in Romans. That's another great example of not taking what we understand adoption today to mean to, to understand what they meant um, when he wrote. And so that's really the goal of interpretation. The interpreter should never use an obscure passage to contradict the clear teaching of Scripture in other areas of the Bible. Let me, let me just read one here, give you an example. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 says this, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? And so somebody will take that verse and say, see, we need to be baptized for the dead. It helps them get, you know, out of different levels of, of purgatory or get into a, an upper level of heaven. And the more you're baptized for them, the more you can kind of move them up the ladder. And they'll go to First Corinthians 15, 29 to teach that. That's a little obscure passage. I mean, he's, he's kind of asking hypothetical questions there. And if we understand the context of that, that whole chapter is Paul is, is trying to convince the, the Corinthians who had somehow been missled to think that they were not going to be resurrected. 
that there is resurrection from the dead, even from them, and he, and he uses Christ's resurrection as proof that they too will be raised. And so you start to put that in context, but it, you know, that's going to contradict the clear teaching of Scripture in other areas like Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the Great Commission, where you're, you're baptizing, you're, you're, you know, you're getting baptized, um, and that's how you, it's a, it's a public declaration of following Christ, of becoming a disciple. Uh, it's, a, it's a public picture of what's already true of you in spiritual baptism. So, so you want to use this obscure passage to contradict a clear passage somewhere else. And so that's um, one example. Um, let's keep going here. The interpreter should always remember that context is king in interpretation. Context is the single most important factor in correct interpretation. Uh, the following types of context should always be considered when interpreting a passage of scripture. You know, what's really interesting it, over the years in, in many different settings, but uh, personal conversations, um, past, pastor workshops in Africa, um, workshops in and around the States. It, it's always been fascinating to me, but we will have like Q and a sessions where people ask a question. Maybe they've got a question about a tough passage. And it's, it's always really interesting because I'd say 90% of the questions, Carl could probably test this too. And Ghana is probably the same as was the same way, but 90% of the questions that people have can be cleared up in context. If you just, if you just go to the passage, read the context, you begin, it, things start to make sense and you can clear things up. And so context is key. It's kind of like in, in real estate, you know, they always say real estate's about three things, location, 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 right? So Use the same thing in Bible interpretation. It's context, context, context. That's going to clear up a lot of things um, in interpretation. And so the, these next five contexts, um, actually, it's not really the next five. It's really the next two. Um, the immediate context is one that we want to kind of keep in mind. It um, would include the passages, the verses, or paragraphs immediately preceding and immediately following the scripture under consideration. Um, so what, what we're going to kind of use for this is kind of a concentric circle concept where you, you've kind of probably seen this before where, you know, maybe this, this center is, is the verse that we're considering, you know, in, in John three, it was, it was, you know, verse 16 that we looked at in our homework. But then um, if we can't get what we're looking for in that verse, like who's, who's saying this, who, who's he speaking it to? You, you can't really find that in John three sixteen. It's just not, uh, it's not clear. So what you do is you'd, you'd move out a concentric circle. And now, now I'm going to look at John 3. Okay, I'm going to look at all the, all the verses before 16. And I'm going to look at all the verses after 16 to see if I can gain some additional insight. And let's say that I, there's still something I don't know about John 3, 16. And I'm, I'm still not getting it from chapter 3. Well, then I'm going to move out another concentric circle and say, okay, is there anything I can find from the book of John? that would help me understand that maybe maybe John uses a term in John 3:16 that you've never seen or heard and you you can't really figure out from the context like what does he mean by this word so maybe you would maybe you would back out the in the entire book of John and and see if he uses the word anywhere else and maybe defines that word somewhere else and so you would look through the book and let's say wow I still can't find it well then you would you would back out and you would say okay what other books did this author write? Okay, so you, you might go to the epistles of John and you say, okay, is this word defined there? No, I still can't find it. And then finally, you might come, you might come out to the other New Testament 
uh, epistles. Okay, but you see kind of how our how our approach is. We're going to stay we're going to stay as tight and near to our verse as long as possible. Versus jumping out. And many people will say, well, I don't know what John, I don't know what this word in John 3.16 is. Let me go find something in 1 Peter. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, let's slow down. Like, let's try to find it here. Let's try to find it in John 3. Let's try to find it in the book of John. Let's try to find it in the epistles of John. And then if we're still having trouble and you want to go to 1 Peter to clarify, all right, let's go there then. But let's kind of keep it as tight as we can for as long as we can. And so you've got the immediate context uh, the remote context is just this circle uh, illustrates uh, would take the scripture under consideration and then would attempt to interpret it in light of its relationship to the book and its relationship to the whole Bible. The other context we want to keep in mind is the grammatical context. Uh, and this requires us to consider carefully the laws of grammar when interpreting scripture. I think Eli was the one who brought up even in John 3.16 this, this combination of past tense and present tense in that verse. So that's just something we want to, we want to keep in mind that, that God has already done something or that he's already determined to do something and that we can benefit from it in the present. If we respond in the way that he's dictating in the case of John three sixteen, it's, it's faith in Christ. We want to keep in mind the cultural, cultural, social, religious context. This requires us to attempt to understand any cultural significance to stories or teachings in the Bible, we should ask the question, is there a cultural, social, and religious custom be, to be considered? Um, a good example, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, uh, 21 to, to 43. Jesus will repeat this phrase, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. You'll see this repetition, and what he's doing is, he, he's not only contrasting the, the letter of the law, but he's also contrasting rabbinical teaching uh, and their interpretation of the law. And what he's saying is, and he's giving the heart behind the law. And that's why he says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed it. And so he kind of heightens that, but you, but you recognize that. And so there's some cultural significance there because He's really challenging the Jewish leaders in their interpretation of law, in their dependence upon other rabbis and what they've said. And this, 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 um, this phony, fake religious culture that the Pharisees were promoting in the nation of Israel, you know, where they were, well, if I swear by the temple, then that means I can cheat you still. But if I swear by the God of the temple, then I can't cheat you. And so there's like this, all this language you'd have to know not to get cheated by, by an Orthodox Jewish person in the day. And that's why Jesus is like, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just, just say what you mean. Well, I swear to you on my mother's grave. Well, okay, well, I can cheat you if it's on my mother's grave. But if I swear on my father's grave, then I can't cheat you. It's just all this just weird language. Just, just say what you mean, you know. And so he was correcting. So some of that cultural stuff will come in um, to the context. Number uh, five. Uh, the other context we want to keep in mind is this historical context. And so this is going to require us uh, to attempt to understand the setting in which someone taught something, the background of what the hearers were facing or what the author was going through um, at the time. All right. And so some common mistakes to avoid during the interpretation steps uh, is you don't want to start with interpretation. You want to always start with observation and then move on to interpretation. We want to just go in order. Keep these things in order so that we get good data 
to use to determine what the, the text actually means. Another mistake is rushing too quickly out of the observation stage. Um, again, this happens when you think you're familiar with the text. There's something about being familiar with the text where you just become a horrible observer. You just are an awful detective because you, you think you've already seen everything you can possibly seen in that room or in that verse or in that passage. And I'm just here to tell you, God, you can't. <laughs> God wants to show you things. God wants to reveal things, maybe, maybe on a deeper level or another connection that you've never seen. So don't, so, so slow down, slow down. Don't rush out of the observation stage. See, don't rush too quickly to commentaries. Study Bible notes. Study Bibles are great, but they are also a pain uh, in your neck, and they will and they will actually hinder your spiritual growth at times, because you get to a tough passage, and instead of doing all the work yourself, uh, you just start reading the study notes, and you just take whatever that interpreter is giving you as, as gospel truth. And then that becomes your view, but you've never wrestled with it yourself. So just be careful. Um, they're to be used as a tool, not a crutch. You know, and I would say the same thing about me. If every time you ran into a tough passage and you, you came to me for the explanation, I would say you're, you're using me as a crutch. Don't, I mean, don't do that all the time. Now there are going to be times where maybe there's something, there's something that you just can't figure out and you want somebody else's opinion. And that's, that's why you know, there's pastors, that's why there's Bible teachers, that's why there's commentaries, is to help in those situations. But don't, um, don't do it until you've personally observed the text and personally wrestled through trying to understand the interpretation. Um, it'll help you even when somebody does explain the correct interpretation to go, oh yeah, I can see that because you've observed the text, you've actually interacted with it. You know, it's kind of like, you know, everyone makes New Year's resolutions at this time. Wouldn't it be cool if if you could just watch a workout video and like it got you in shape, like you could just sit there like eating chips and watch the workout video and like, wow, they're really working out. This is great. The pounds are shedding, the, the inches are coming off. You know, I mean, obviously it doesn't work that way. You got to get up and do it yourself. You got to be active. You got to be doing and involved in the activity. Um, and it's the same in Bible study. You want to be spiritually exercising your, your muscles, your observation muscles, interpretation muscles. So letter D, um, another mistake is reading our own theology into the text. That's eisegesis instead of letting the text speak. That's exegesis. So we can then uh, compare the verse, passage, or book to other areas of scripture and determine how they fit together. But we must let the text in front of us speak first. You know, a lot of people will do that. They get into a passage, they're very uncomfortable with the passage. And so instead of like wrestling with that passage, they just cross-reference to another passage that's one of their hobby horse passages that seems to explain it all away. And it's like, but yeah, but you've never dealt with that particular text. And so we want to we want to deal with the text that's in front of us. We can bring in cross-references later. We can show how they fit later, but we want to be honest with the text in front of us and not rush through that. Okay, and let's kind of, we'll move through this uh, fairly quickly, the application um, step. And this is our third and final step of Bible study. And the goal is, is to take the truths that have been spiritually revealed and understood through observation and interpretation and then accurately apply them to our lives. This, the foundation for this step uh, is accurate interpretation. And remember, uh, if a person studies the scripture without uh, any desire to apply its truth, they are wasting their time. Unless they're trying to become a professional Bible trivia person. But I understand that doesn't pay too well. So wouldn't, 
Wouldn't recommend that as a career. The main question during this step is what does the text mean to me? Or what do I, what does the text want me to do with this information? So after hours of analyzing and collecting data, having put together the data points gathered to determine the text meaning, we're ready to now apply the meaning to our own lives. And so we're actually ready to live, use the truth, apply it, walk down life's path, hopefully toward uh, a goal, a reward, acceptable service to the Lord, applying his word, those kind of things. So that's what we're looking for in application. And so when we talk about the method of application, well, it's initiated uh, simply to believe the truth, study, studied, and then to act upon the truth as a reality in our daily lives. And then this last phrase is key as we've been studying through Romans, it's independence upon the spirit of God. Um, it's, it's one thing to have, to, to want to have the, the right desires to do things, but if we're not depending upon God's resources to execute it, we're not going to be able to execute it. And so application is going to become, uh, for many of us, that's where we fall down, isn't it? We, we tend to know a lot more truth than we apply. That's, that's tenet, uh, tends to be the area that we fall down in. And so some common mistakes to avoid during this step. Uh, don't start with application. Always start with observation, then move on to interpretation, and then and only then begin the application process. Don't read a verse one time and say, this is what God wants me to do with it. That's just, just a dangerous approach to Bible study. You know, it's just a- almost guaranteed that, that that's going to end up in, a, in an improper application of truth uh, if you don't spend time. So don't start with application. Make sure that you keep that uh, in its, in its place. Uh, another potential mistake is rushing too quickly out of the interpretation step. The goal is to understand what the text means. Uh, again, original message to original audience, and then determine its direct or indirect application to me in my situation. The question should be what timeless truth, excuse me, is being communicated here that I could apply today where my feet are touching the ground. Okay. And so there, there are many times in the scriptures where you get to the interpretation and you're like, okay, what's this have to do with me? I mean, this is, this is very specific to the nation of Israel. Like what, why is this a big deal? Like, why was it a big deal? Okay. So, so God just goes through all this instruction to Noah about how long these boards need to be. I mean, unless God's wanting me to build an ark, I don't see how on earth this could apply to me. But, but maybe the timeless truth that you, you find in that, in that passage is God's an orderly God. And is that something that we see repeated throughout scripture? Well, yeah. I mean, in fact, in terms of running and, and being a part of a, a local church service, God is still an orderly God. He wants things done in order. And we see in the book of Corinthians, they were doing things recklessly and out of order as it relates to spiritual gifts. And so there are some principles we can see there that can, that can um, result in some direct or indirect application uh, for us. C, uh, another mistake is attempting to apply spiritual truth without depending upon the spirit of God. Having the right desires alone without God's empowerment will result in frustration and failure, a la Romans 7, as we've kind of looked at here in the last couple of weeks. A couple more points. Um, j- just in light of this, many people scream, obey, obey, obey at this step of application um, as if that's a means to an end. Obedience will be the result of a believer walking by faith. Remember that. That's always a step down the road. We want to begin to walk by faith. 
Um, obedience is not the means to spirituality, is the result of spirituality. Remember the question in the Roman study is, do you obey to be spiritual or do you have to be spiritual to obey? Well, I believe the scripture teaches you have to be spiritual to obey. It's not a means to spirituality, it's a result of spirituality. And so we want to keep that in order, uh, as you will, as we begin to try to apply biblical truth. Um, Kind of related to that, obedience springs from faith. And so walking by faith is to be emphasized as a foundation for true and lasting obedience. And again, that's really played out um, step by step in Romans chapter 6. And so as a quick review uh, of the three steps, and we'll kind of get more into this um, the following week. Observation, you're a detective. What does the text say? Interpretation. You're taking your data points now that you've observed and you're saying, what does the text mean? You're trying to put that together. One meaning from the original author to the original audience. And then finally, you want to apply it. What am I to do with this? What does it mean to me? How do I put it all uh, together? And so that's really the close of our study tonight. Okay, well, let's, um, let's close in prayer. And just remember, um, if you're going to be here next week, um, even if you're not, it'd be a good exercise. Work through Acts 1.8. Okay, begin to record your observations. We'll do the same type of thing. Um, starting next week, what we're going to do uh, is just kind of a preview. Is, is I want to kind of look at some tools uh, that, are, that can be available to you to help you in your Bible study. Um, tools that, that define words and, and help you with grammar and those kind of things. And so we'll kind of look at all those tools next week. And then next week will be a lot of practicum practical kind of exercises where you're doing the work and then you're verbalizing it back to me and we're hearing what what everyone else is doing so we we're going to benefit from each other so the more prepared and ready that you can be when you come that would that would be great all right let's close with a word of prayer lord thanks um for this evening we want to uh, each one here uh, has a desire to be a, a student a better student of your word we we simply want to understand what, what you desire to communicate with us. And so, Lord, we just pray that we would be uh, equipped with the tools necessary uh, to grow uh, in our ability to understand your word. But we also pray that we would be convinced uh, of the need uh, to depend upon your spirit to teach us. And so uh, we just pray for the combination of these two things as we continue in our study. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.